Turn with me in your Bibles to the Old Testament, to the book of Esther. If you're not sure where Esther is, it's Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, and so on. That'll give you an idea just before Job, just before Psalms. So the book of Esther, and I'm just going to read the first nine verses tonight, forms an introduction to this book in the Old Testament, uh, the book of Esther. So just the first nine verses, uh, it says now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces in these days, or those days, when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and the governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. So this is a six-month feast, right? I don't know many people that could give a feast for six months. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. I wondered if that's the leftovers, right? 180 days of feasting and let's get rid of all the leftovers, get the people in. Verse 6, there were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillows, pillars, and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict, there is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. And that will suffice. There are many other things we could read, of course, as a means of introduction, but I think that's sufficient for our purposes tonight. One of the things I've discovered, uh, especially in, in studying the book of Revelation over the years, is that in biblical study, I think it should invariably always be the rule uh, that you must start with the whole or the big picture. And then you move from the big picture, the whole, to the individual parts. And that's kind of what I want to do uh, with the book of Esther. There's nothing so uh, likely, I think, to lead us into error or into heresy when you start with the little parts. And I think that is particularly true in doctrine as you find it in the New Testament. You start with the parts, you eventually have a lot of questions. And one of the things I really believe about Scripture is that Scripture is not designed to raise questions in your mind. Scripture is always designed to resolve questions. If you have problems with understanding the Bible, it's not the Bible's problem or fault. It's our fault. And one of the ways that we cure that or resolve that is to go to the Bible and let the Bible tell us what the Bible says. 
And the one thing about Scripture in terms of interpretation, rules for interpretation, we always say at the very top is this rule, let Scripture interpret Scripture. Let the Bible tell us what the Bible says. And so when you find yourself confused, when you find yourself not understanding or having so many questions that are raised and so on, the answer to that is not to read the books of men, not to read or listen to what others say, but to simply go to God's Word and in prayer, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, ask Him to guide you and to help you because, of course, He will lead us into all the truth. So, when we come to the book of Esther, I keep that in my mind because I want to give tonight, by way of introduction, this, this picture from the large picture, if I can put it like that. Now, Esther, of course, is the story, as we all know, I think, of a young woman who rose to, it would appear, great power in the ancient world, in the ancient world of the kingdom, the kingdom of Persia, in the days of King Ahasuerus. Uh, there have been many views of Esther. Some, for example, have looked at Esther and said she is the ultra-feminist. She stands right there for all women to, to uh, follow as an example. She is a great politician, some have said. She is a moral example, we are told, this young girl, this young woman. And many, I think, read the book of Esther, even Christians along the lines that she stands in regard to us as a moral example and a virtuous woman. But that is not what the book of Esther conveys at all to us. Esther is not giving to us the book of Esther that is that kind of picture that we find. In fact, you read here in the very first chapter about what Ahasuerus did. He gave a party for his army, for his rulers, for his nobles. And he even said with regard to the people, when he gave them a little party for seven days, he said to them, there's, no, there's no, nothing holding you back from drinking. Drinking is without compulsion. Just go and enjoy yourself and be wild and so on. Instead, when we come to the book of Esther, I think we have to confront the, the thing out front that we are dealing and facing with a number of questions that rise from within the book, that certainly, I think, need answering from our perspective as believers, as Christians. For example, there is no question that the moral behavior of Esther will simply not pass the standards of Scripture. It just will not pass what the Bible talks about in terms of morality. I mean, she's hardly to be considered, really, as an example for young girls or for young women. In fact, she displays, in my opinion, very Disney World-like characteristics. I mean, I think if she was in Hollywood, and they starred her in some great film about the ancient kingdom of media, of, I mean, of Persia and the Medes, she probably would win an Oscar for her role. In fact, I know there was a Christian film, uh, One Night with the King, that came out a while back. I never saw the film. I wasn't interested in seeing the film because the Bible is sufficient for me, in fact, to convey all that I need to know uh, from uh, the perspective of God rather than the perspective of man and the interpretation that we might bring to what we perceive from the book of Scripture. So I think uh, every, any Christian who is seriously uh, studying the Word of God, when they come to read the book of Esther, you will find that you have questions. In fact, you will find yourselves a little bit in a dilemma 
when you come to the book of Esther. So the question is, how do we approach this Old Testament book, which is, I think, very rarely preached upon or very rarely considered, except in the popular level uh, when you look at what happened in the book of Esther. And perhaps we should ask the question, why should we study the book of Esther? Is there anything of value in this book that would be of help to us as a Christian, since it happened so long ago? Now, as you know, there are only two books in the Bible that bear the name of women. women. There is, of course, the book of Ruth, and there is the book of Esther. And there are, of course, many women in Scripture that are, that are preeminent in their godliness, in their righteousness, uh, virtuous examples that we have, like Sarah in the Old Testament, or even Deborah the prophetess, or Samuel's mother, Hannah, or perhaps in the New Testament, like Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, even Mary, the mother of our Lord Jesus Christ. And certainly, we should include Priscilla as a very godly woman in the New Testament. So there are godly women to be found in Scripture. But at the same time, we all recognize that there are very evil women that the Bible talks about. For example, the most famous of all must surely be Jezebel. And then, of course, Athaliah. Those two women in Old Testament history stand out as very, very evil women. In fact, they are representative of idolatrous, and immoral, idolatrous worship and immorality that was found in Old Testament Israel. So we read about these godly women and we read about these evil women. And then we come to these books that bear the name of women, the, uh, like Ruth and like Esther. And frankly speaking, the contrasts that you discover between the book of Ruth and the book of Esther are quite staggering and startling. I mean, they stand out to you. I mean, think of the book of Ruth, for example. What a beautiful book that is. I mean, it's such a, such a wonderful book to read about this woman who was a Gentile, in fact, a Moabites came from the land of Moab, having married Naomi's son, and therefore is the daughter-in-law to Naomi, who is her mother-in-law, of course. And she has become a widow, and she is with Naomi, and they hear the news that back in Bethlehem, things have improved. Uh, there's no longer a famine in the land, and they, they've heard that God is there, and their things are prospering. So Naomi decides that she will return. And Ruth decides, of course, to go with her mother-in-law. The interesting thing about this is that the Bible says very powerfully and very clearly in the book of Deuteronomy, in chapter 23, that no Ammonite and no Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. They may not enter. And there were two reasons given why an, a descendant of Ammon and a descendant of uh, Moab should not enter into the very presence of God, into the kingdom of Israel. The first reason is that when Israel came out of Egypt in the wilderness, the Moabites and the Ammonites refused to supply bread and water along the way. So God held them accountable for their failure to supply physical food to the nation of Israel. And not only that, but we are told they hired Balaam, the false prophet, to condemn or to curse Israel. Yet what do we discover about Ruth from Moab, the Moabites? She is brought in. She is incorporated in. 
which only points out how gracious God was to this young woman, this daughter-in-law, to Naomi. Naomi. So she comes back with Naomi, her mother-in-law, as a Gentile, as an outsider. And you recall how she put it to Naomi when Naomi said to her, look, go back to your family, go back to your home, back to your gods. She said, where you go, I will go. And your people shall be my people, and your God shall be my God. I mean, isn't that a confession of faith? She has come to believe and to trust in the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. She believes in the covenant God of Scripture. She believes that God made promises to this people, the people of Israel, and she wants to be part of that. Not only that, but Ruth is a, a beautiful love story with Boaz, isn't it, who is pictured as the kinsman redeemer. And of course, we can look at all the types and pictures that that represents to us of the Lord Jesus Christ and His church. He is the redeemer. He is our kinsman, our kinsman redeemer. He is like Boaz. So they get married, as you know, what a wonderful story it is in four little chapters. And what's the outcome of their marriage? Ruth becomes the great-grandmother of King David. Isn't that amazing? A Moabites, a Gentile, incorporated into the Messianic line. What a story! God is everywhere in the book of Ruth, right? And I would encourage you all, if you want to be encouraged, read the book of Ruth. You just cannot come away from that, recognizing that God does something in the lives of individual people, even Gentiles who have no... Uh, bearing on the land or the nation of Israel. Now having said that, when you come to Esther, there is not one single mention of God in the book. There is no mention of God anywhere in the book of Esther. In fact, this is the only book in all of the Bible where God is not even mentioned once. Not just a few times, but just once. No mention of God. In fact, the outcome of the book is that the Jewish people save themselves from annihilation by killing 75,000 of their enemies in Persia. Someone has pointed out that if you were to substitute every reference in the book of Esther where you find the words Jew or Jews with any other ethnic group in all the world, you would or you would find there would be no reason at all to think that there was any connection with that description of any other ethnic group with God or the Bible. So just because it mentions the Jews in the book of Esther does not mean that this is about God or anything like that. In fact, you're hard-pressed to find God in some ways. It is a story about the Jewish people who are exiles, in Persia, King Ahasuerus is the king. And these people, these Jews are exiles who have not gone back with Zerubbabel. You remember in 536 BC, after Cyrus had given them permission, you can read about that in Ezra chapter 1, to go back and rebuild the city of Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. That's what Zerubbabel, the governor, and Joshua, the high priest, were responsible to do. They laid the foundation, you remember. It took them four years. They started the work in 536, but it took them from 520 to 516 to finally lay a foundation. And the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, 
Nehemiah were urging them on to do and to accomplish that very thing. But in the book of Esther, there is nothing religious in the sense that you read about Zerubbabel or any of those things. In fact, there's not even a mention of the exiles who have returned. Perhaps some 50 or 60 years prior to the events of the book of Esther. So Zerubbabel is out of mind and out of sight uh, when we come to it. There's no divine name. There's no mention of Yahweh. There's no mention of Elohim. There's nothing. There's not even a, a single hint of God in the book of Esther. In fact, the events of Esther all occur outside of Israel, have no connection to Israel, and are all said to occur in the Persian kingdom. And Cyrus, of course, had permitted these exiles when they wanted to freely go back, and they had done so. But some had stayed behind, and Esther and all these other Jews in the land of Persia, under King Ahasuerus, are those exiles that did not go back. They were content to stay in the land of Persia. Not only that, no mention of God, but no mention of Jerusalem. Nothing. Jerusalem is the heart of a Jew's heart and mind. No mention of Jerusalem. No mention of the temple. No mention of worshipping Yahweh. Nothing. No approach to, to God at all. We know from these, this first chapter, the first three verses, that the Persian king is this man that we call Ahasuerus, or as history knows him, Xerxes. Xerxes. And Xerxes, of course, reigned from 486 B.C. to 465 B.C. Seven years after the end of Xerxes, Ezra, in 458, is permitted to go back with exiles and return. And in 445, some 13 years after Ezra goes back, Nehemiah is permitted to return, and his king, of course, was Artaxerxes. I was cupbearer to the king. You remember how uh, Nehemiah put it. Xerxes, in his reign, short reign, some 20 years or so, he was the son of Darius I. And Darius I was a king who had granted permission for the Jews, in addition to Cyrus the Great, to go back to allow them to continue to rebuild the temple. And they did that under the ministry of Haggai and Zechariah, as I mentioned. Xerxes himself, this Ahasuerus, he opposed the rebuilding of the temple. You can read about that, by the way, in Ezra chapter 4 and verse 6. So he put a hold on rebuilding the temple. You remember, that was the great problem, trying to get this temple building off the ground, right, under Zerubbabel. And it took them a long time to get to the place where they could rebuild it. When Xerxes, or Ahasuerus, came to the throne, he was 32 years of age, 486 B.C. And will you notice right here in chapter 1, in verse 3, that it says, In the third year of his reign, he gave a feast. And the third year from 486, of course, is 483 B.C. So in 483 B.C., Bible is quite precise, the third year of the reign of Xerxes, or Ahasuerus, he gave this feast. Unlike Daniel, for example, in Esther there's no mention of prayer. Nobody prays. Mordecai doesn't pray. Esther doesn't pray. Esther doesn't say to Mordecai when there's danger lurking, I need to go to God. 
I need to pray to Yahweh. I need to seek the favor of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God. Yeah, Mordecai, who's her spiritual advisor, doesn't even seem to say anything. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't even say that you should pray. So no one prays in the book of Esther. There's no prophetic vision in the book of Esther at all. It seems to me then, there is little regard in the book of Esther even for God's law. You just don't read about it. Violations of the law and breaking the law of God. There are no miracles that are mentioned in the book of Esther. So, from one sense, it would appear to us that the book of Esther appears on the surface to be a very non-religious book. A book about Jewish history. A book about uh, how the Jews delivered themselves and Mordecai and Esther were involved in their deliverance or their saving of themselves. In fact, both Mordecai and Esther do not seem to convey the character that we're so familiar with other Bible heroes. So you look at Abraham, for example. What a Bible hero Abraham is, right? His influence goes right through the New Testament. His influence is all about God, believing God, trusting God. What did Abraham go through? He went through many trials. He went through many hardships. What did he do? He went to God. He believed God. He looked to God. Even when there was silence from God, he trusted and he waited. And with patience, he anticipated that God would provide him with the evidence or whatever was needed to fulfill his word to Abraham. What a man of faith. Uh, take Isaac, take Jacob, great heroes. Or take Joseph. What a hero Joseph is. If ever there was a biblical hero in the truest sense of the word, it must be the man Joseph. What an, a beautiful man, a beautiful example. Uh, very much like the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so, unlike Daniel, or Shadrach, or Meshach, or Abednego in Daniel chapter 1, Esther, it would appear, is not even in the slightest influenced by Persian dietary laws. You remember how Daniel and his three friends were not going to partake of Nebuchadnezzar's food. Oh, we want nothing to do with it. We've never eaten Gentile food. We, we will not eat of it. And of course, that was not a good thing, right? Because Nebuchadnezzar wanted them to assimilate into the kingdom of Babylon. And of course the great test was, as Daniel said to the, the captain who was over them, look, give us vegetables and water, and then you look at us after ten days and see how we, how we are. And guess what? They were fatter. Fatter, don't forget that. Fatter on the diet that was prescribed by Daniel and his three friends. One of the things about Esther is instead of uh, protesting the edicts of Haman, she hides her identity as if she's ashamed of being Jewish. She keeps it away. She, she plays, doesn't she, it would appear, to win the beauty contest of Persia. The prize, of course, is the ultimate prize. You will be queen of Persia. Guess what? You get to spend the night with an uncircumcised Gentile pagan to whom she is not married. And she pleases him, it would appear, better than all the other women who have done exactly the same thing. There's no virtue here in that behavior. And she doesn't seem to be troubled by it. In fact, it would appear that Esther is promoted, favored, and directed by the eunuch of the harem to go in that direction. And she takes full advantage of that. Hardly, dear congregation, a virtuous example for us. 
or for any young girl in a congregation. And Mordecai, he doesn't seem, her, her relative, he doesn't seem to object either to Esther doing those kinds of things or being taken. Esther only risks her life when Mordecai points out to her that you might lose your life yourself if you say nothing at this time. Otherwise she would have been silent. And Mordecai himself was silent. And isn't there the question of brutality and violence in this book? I mean, when Esther herself demands the death of Haman's ten sons and demands the death of all of her enemies. Israel, modern day Israel, Israel for many years, has always celebrated Mordecai as the great biblical hero, the deliverer of his people. Oh, how wise he was, we are told. I mean, he turned, it would appear, disaster into victory, but he was the one, don't forget, who told Esther to hide her Jewish uh, identity, which would be to compromise your position under God before a pagan people, and to compromise any faith that she might have had and would violate the law of God. He seemed to say, I don't have any trouble with you doing those things. And not only that, but remember Mordecai's refusal to bow down to Haman, which is, which is promoted, I think, often in our preaching, in our books, as what a wonderful thing to stand against Haman. But that very action of Mordecai incited Haman to take vengeance, not just on Mordecai, but the entire Jewish nation, to destroy them, to wipe them out. Mordecai's behavior prompted Haman to do that. His refusal to bow down jeopardized the entire Jewish people. Now, when we look at those kinds of things, those are the questions that, that are there, right? And it's difficult to deal with them. In fact, the motives of Mordecai and Esther, who are at the center of the story, are very difficult to discern. We don't see any driving motivation from love for God love for the law, love for the temple, love for the people of God. We don't see any motivating factor like that. We have no idea also what Esther herself thought of when she was taken to spend the, this night with the king, although she spent a long period of time getting ready for that one night. So there's no attempt made by whoever wrote the book of Esther. Some people suggest Mordecai, that may be, okay? Uh, from chapter 10, the very, very short chapter of chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. Perhaps Mordecai wrote Esther, we don't know. But whoever wrote it, uh, there's no attempt by the author to either condemn or commend the, the behavior of Mordecai and of Esther. So for these reasons, when commentators come or interpreters come to the book of Esther, they express the difficulties that I have expressed or outlined tonight. Calvin, as you know, wrote many books. He wrote books on uh, commentaries on the Old Testament, commentaries on the New Testament, but he never wrote a commentary on the book of Esther. In fact, Luther himself was so outraged by the book of Esther that he denounced it completely outright. In fact, he said, I am so great an enemy of the second book of Maccabees and of Esther that I wish they had not come to us at all, for they have so many heathen unnaturalities. And I don't even know if unnaturalities is a word. But that's what Luther thought about Esther. Okay? He was very troubled by the book of Esther. Jewish rabbis, on the other hand, well, they have no problem with the book of Esther. It's a wonderful book. 
Because it's the salvation of the Jewish nation, the Jewish kingdom. So they highly value and esteem the book of Esther. The great 12th century rabbi philosopher Moses Maimonides, Maimonides, he ranked it equal with the Pentateuch. He said when Messiah comes, the other books may pass away, but the Torah and Esther will never pass away. So the Jews have a very high regard for the book of Esther. And so for the Jewish people, even down to the present day, the book of Esther has provided them with abundant hope that God will deliver them from all their enemies, even though God is not even mentioned in the book of Esther at all. Or to put it another way, Israel believes today that the Jewish nation can survive any and every assault because look what happened in the time of Esther. So now, having said that, when we come ourselves as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, when we come to the book of Esther, we recognize that along with Jews and Christians, of course, that the book of Esther belongs to the Old Testament canon of Scripture, that it has a rightful place to that. In fact, no Jew objects to it, and so no Christians, as far as I know, except for Luther's problem, objects to the book of Esther being in our Old Testament Scriptures. So it is accepted along those lines in the Old Testament canon. Secondly, it is accepted by us, evangelical Orthodox Christians, as part of the inspired Word of God. And so we believe that the book of Esther like the book of Ezra or Nehemiah or Psalms or Daniel, is inspired of the Holy Spirit. Now anyone reading Esther, and by that I mean any Christian reading the book of Esther, recognizes that behind the scenes, of course, that surely God is the one who orchestrates all things. So much so that the focal point is not Mordecai or Esther, but ultimately God Himself. That the deliverance that is worked out and brought about by God in silence from God is nevertheless from God. He is the issue. God is at hand everywhere in the book of Esther when we read it as believers. If you're an unbeliever and read the book of Esther, God doesn't matter. But not for Christians. We see God everywhere. In fact, we know, according to the Lord Jesus Christ, that every book in the Bible, the Old Testament, speaks eloquently of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we must consider that this book, Esther, then, has inestimable value from that perspective. Esther is a book that reveals conflicts, doesn't it, between the kingdom of Xerxes and the kingdom of God on one hand. I mean, this is what I was saying this morning. There is always this conflict between the city of man and the city of God. And that's the conflict of the Bible. Even though the presence of God is hidden in the book of Esther, the intervention of God is everywhere in the book of Esther. I mean, God working with flawed people, God working with failed people, God working through their weaknesses, God delivering His people time and time and time again. And isn't that true of ourselves? We are flawed people. We are failed people. There are many things in our lives, when we look at them, we're ashamed of them. 
we, we find that they come back to us with such vehemence and power that they affect us so strongly that our spiritual lives almost go into serious decline. There are many Christians like that. I understand that from a pastoral perspective. Many Christians struggle with that. Not every Christian is up here. Many, many Christians are going through valleys and darkness and shadow and affliction and trial. <coughs> And they look for God. And like Job, they, where is God? And why are you quiet, God? Why are you silent when I need you, when I cry to you? Then there are other Christians who seem to live up here and never have these problems. That's not the real world, by the way. The real world is where we find ourselves expressing at times our flawed, sinful character with all of the baggage that we bring with it into our current day lives. And we all experience that. That's why we need the grace of God over and over and over again. That's why we must remind ourselves that God has been so gracious to all of us because all of us were sinners, condemned and guilty, and all of us stood exactly the same before God, and He had mercy on us, and He saved us by His grace. And there's not one of us superior to the other. We are all under the grace of of our Lord Jesus Christ, experiencing the mercy and the kindness of God. Yet all of us go through these different aspects of life, these different trials of life, and God sometimes seems to be absent from us. We struggle, there's no question about it, with the invisible God. Where is God when I need Him? Why doesn't He answer my prayers? Why is He silent at times? And every Christian uh, goes through these kinds of periods. Let's remind ourselves that Persia has all the power, all the power, and that the Jews in Persia have no power, none whatsoever. They are slaves, exiles in a foreign land, still even though the, they've gone through the Babylonian captivity and it's extended now into the Persians, the Medes and the Persians, under Cyrus and under the Medes and all of those subsequent kings. They are not the equals of the Persians. They are Jews. They are exiles. They live in a foreign land. Where is God then? Has God forgotten them? Has God abandoned them? Has God left them to their own devices? In the book of Esther, you might think that. You might come away, well, there's no mention of God. God is silent towards Israel, exiled Israel. He has forgotten them. He's left them to their own lives. Get on with your lives and live them. So the Jews in the book of Esther are still exiles, and they're still surrounded by strangers, the Persians. And in Esther's world, of course, Esther and Mordecai, like being in our world today, they, the Jews, Mordecai and Esther, they face two great issues, two great dangers that we face, that you face tomorrow out in the world. The first danger, of course, is the danger of assimilation. Why don't you give in to your culture? Why don't you be assimilated? Why don't you be like them? Why why struggle against the culture of the world, of America? Why struggle? Why just assimilate, be like them, be like the world? This is a great danger that we all face, right? The danger of assimilation. But there's another danger that's even perhaps darker than that, and that is the danger of despair. You give up, not give in to your culture, but you give up on your God. Why doesn't God answer my prayers? 
Why is God silent about this very issue that surely God would be most concerned about? Why doesn't God save my family members? Where is God when I cry to Him, when I ask Him to deliver me, to help me in my struggles? Where is He? Why is He silent? Why has has He abandoned me? Has He forgotten me? The danger of assimilation, the danger of despair. You see, they've spent too long in Persia. Spent too long there. Some of the exiles, as we know, 50, 60 years ago under Zerubbabel, they've already gone. But they have stayed. And they have become comfortable in Persia. Learning to coexist, not being equal, but living and adopting ways and customs so that they won't get pressured by the world, by Persia. That Persia will keep its distance from them if they just blend in. And that's always the allure of the world. If you blend in, you'll never have trouble from us. You'll never suffer from us because you're one of us then. But they're not really part of Persia. And Mordecai and Esther are not really part of Persia, and they know it. And you get that impression as you read this great book. Perhaps that's why Mordecai, feeling that he was different, that he didn't belong, refuses to bow down, pay homage to this man, Haman. But on the other hand, as I've said, God is silent in the book of Esther. He seems to have vanished. He seems to have packed up his bags and gone back to Jerusalem with the other exiles. And that's where God is. And if you want to find God, you've got to go to His temple and you've got to go to His land. You've got to go back to the Israel. Because He said He would take them back. He would return the exiles. But these who have remained, it seems as if God left them and has gone away from them. And so they've despaired, I think, of ever being of significance, of ever having any value in the world, of ever being used by God. God has left us. And the real people of God are back in the land. But we, we are just here in this foreign land. Hope and faith have been eroded over time. And they've become, as a result, spiritually stale. It so easily happens to us, you know. We become spiritually stale. Status quo is always a great danger, isn't it? You go through the motions to survive daily life. You do the same thing over and over and over again. And you wonder, where is the power of God? Because nothing seems exciting. Nothing seems definite from God's perspective. And so when you forget God, because you think God has forgotten you, that's when you fail to see that God is the God who always works in the insignificant details. That the God who is at work is always in those situations that you think don't matter to God, but they matter very much to God. And Esther, no miracles, right? Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego delivered out of the fiery furnace. No miracle like Daniel delivered out of the lion's den. Nothing. God is not with us, it would appear. Instead, Esther shows us we must see when we come to the book of Esther that the invisible God, the silent God, is behind the scenes working in quiet, sovereign, total power, always doing His will and always doing His work. And that's what I suggest to you we all must see. 
when we come to the book of Esther. Because that's coming in faith. That's coming with hope in our hearts. That's believing that God is always working, even when you don't see Him, even when He's silent. He's always working. In fact, that is what the Bible teaches us. Okay, so now, having said that, I think it might be helpful if I give you uh, an outline to the book of Esther. Because how do we outline the book of Esther? I've always believed that outlines are very beneficial to the Christian in understanding their Bibles and the books of the Bible, but they really are only useful if they stick in your mind. If they don't stick in your mind, then the outline really, which is a shortcut, right, to understanding the whole picture, if it doesn't stick in your mind, then really it's of no value. So really, the shorter, the better, right? Because you can't remember great details. Or, to put it another way, to be succinct means to be clear and to the point. So, when you look at the book of Esther, Esther seems to revolve around three feasts. Number one, there is the feasts of Ahasuerus. He gives a feast right here in chapter 1, right? Chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through chapter 4, verse 17. The feasts of Xerxes. Then, the feasts of Esther. Because she gives two feasts on back-to-back days, right? Invites Xerxes, her husband, and invites Haman, chapter 5, verse 1, through chapter 7, verse 10. And the third feast is the Feast of Purim, which is the outcome of the book, right? On, from chapter 8, verse 1, through chapter 9, 32. And chapter 10, of course, is three verses, a very short conclusion to the book. So, the feasts of Xerxes, the feasts of Esther, the feasts of Purim. That's what the book of Esther revolves around. But all of those feasts at the same time revolve around two even shorter or more simple ideas. First of all, the, uh, the threat to the Jews, chapter 1 through chapter 4, verse 17. The threat to the Jews, and secondly, the triumph of the Jews, chapter 5 through chapter 10. The threat to the Jews, the danger to the Jews, if you like, the triumph of the Jews, or the deliverance of the Jews, if you like. So danger and deliverance. That's what the book of Esther is about. Threat to the Jews and the triumph of the Jews. Now I think those outlines are sufficient, I think, to convey the basic circumstances and the basic layout of the book of Esther. If anyone asks you now, what's the book of Esther about? You can tell them it's about three feasts. It's about the Feast of Xerxes and Esther and Purim, and then you can fill in the details. But you know, at the same time, while outlines are helpful, themes or key ideas are very important as well. And I think it's helpful to think about some of the themes. And I've already hinted, I think, at some of those. There are themes that are supplied, and there are themes that are implied. Okay? So themes are out there on the surface, and then there are themes that are behind the scenes that you don't see written there just so easily. For example, a massive implied theme in the book of Esther is the providence of God. A massive implied theme is the providence of God. Now why do we say that? Because we believe, we confess, because the Bible teaches us that God is behind all scenes. In fact, the confession says it like this, that God directs, and God upholds, and God disposes, and God governs. What is that? God accomplishing through all people, 
at all times, through all events of all history, God accomplishing his purposes. doesn't matter if it's Esther, or if you go back, uh, go forward a few years to Ezra, and go forward a few years to Nehemiah, you certainly read all about God in Ezra and Nehemiah. Two very, three very distinct books, right? Esther versus Ezra and Nehemiah, where God is everywhere, and where God appears to be nowhere. Yet we believe, because the Bible teaches us, that God is always everywhere, always working behind the scenes, whether it's in Ezra's day, in Nehemiah's day, or even in Esther's day. So in theological terms, the doctrine of the providence of God simply means that God has directed or is directing all things to the end for which He created them. That God is taking all the events of your individual life to the ends for which He has made your life and my life. And look tonight, here we are, sitting together, the lives of our lives weaving together, and then you go home and I go to my home, and we separate, yet we come back together. So all what happens in between is to the ends for which God has determined to accomplish His purposes in your life and my life. And praise God, you're in my life and I'm in your life, and I hope that's a good thing. But God has done it. God has done it. So if God is at work behind the scenes in all of human history, then when you read the book of Esther, Haman will never succeed. He cannot succeed. He cannot overcome, throw out the plans that God has for Mordecai, and God has for Esther, and God has for the Jewish nation. In other words, God's plans and God's purposes can never ever be thwarted, can never ever be changed, can never ever be turned aside. In fact, that's the teaching, the history of the Bible. That's the life of Jesus. If ever a life is lived in the sovereign purposes of God, it's the life of our Savior. In fact, the crucifixion of Jesus is said to be, according to the purpose and foreknowledge, the predestined plan of God, so that Jesus is not crucified by surprise, by anger, by hatred, but by the purpose of God giving up of His Son. So that even in the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, the hand of God is superintending all the events surrounding Him. Pontius Pilate, Herod, the Roman soldiers, whoever it is, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, whatever they say, whatever they've determined, been planning for years and years to do to Jesus, it's God's plan. And God is at work all the way through all those years of the life of our Lord Jesus. Frankly, if that's how God is with His Son, oh, God is so gracious to us in all your, the vicissitudes of your little life and my little life, the topsy-turvies, ups and downs that you and I go through. What a comfort it is to know that in every single circumstance of your life, whether it's a trial, or whether it's a joy, whatever it is, that God is behind everything. Now you know, brothers and sisters, life is full of surprises from our perspective, but no surprise to God, none whatsoever. In fact, we have to remind ourselves of this over and over again when we are surprised that this is not a surprise to God, that God has in fact determined and purposed these things. Oh, how soon we forget that, or how easily we forget such things. And when we forget those things, what we tend to do is to substitute other things in their place. 
which in essence is simply saying God is not enough, so I will substitute my ideas, whatever they are, as my God to deal with my problems. And whenever you take things into your own hand, you will discover how quickly and how soon trouble comes your way because you leave God out of those things. This book of Esther is read by the nation of Israel on every feast of Purim. And that's the last feast in the book of Esther. A time of celebration, late February, early March for us in our calendar, when they remind themselves, the nation of Israel, of the events of Esther, because it reminds them that God, in their minds, has never abandoned the people of Israel, the Jewish nation. That their enemies can never succeed. But we, when we look at the book of Esther, we see the hand of God as, as this invisible God, this silent God who is maneuvering all the circumstances, yes, of ancient history, but who is the same God who does that in my little life in history today and your life as well. So here we should not be dismayed then that God is not mentioned. That has caused people problems. God is not in Esther but God is in Esther. You know how I know that? Because by the time you get to the book of Esther in your reading, in your Bible, as you get through Ezra and Nehemiah and come to Esther, you will have discovered that the scriptures from Genesis have been an unfolding, a self-disclosure of God Himself. For 1,500 years, God has been revealing Himself. God has been revealing Himself. So when you read your Bible, the book of Esther, you, don't, you do not say to yourself, God is not here. No, you say, God has been showing Himself, and I'm familiar with the character and with the purposes of God uh, all the way back to the very beginning. Christianity does not rest then on a mystical idea that we have within our minds or in our souls, like the, the cults or false religions have this perception. No, we rest on the events of history, the history that is in the hands of God. That's what we believe, that's what we trust. Because in those events, God has manifested Himself. God has shown Himself. So I don't know what will happen in your life tomorrow, but I can assure you that whatever happens in your life tomorrow, look for God. Look for the hand of God. Look for the purpose of God. Don't bemoan your situation, but say thank you God for whatever trials you have brought because in the trials He is making you like His Son. An event of history that brought about the crucifixion, the death of His beloved Son. Jesus is the ultimate revelation, isn't He? If ever you want to see what God is like, look at Christ. There you will see God. God's revelation of Himself then in the very time and period of human history. God reveals Himself as sovereign creator and God reveals Himself as a sustaining redeemer. He has made us and He has saved us. And it's all by grace, by His goodness, for His purpose. So as we study the book of Esther, I must confess that I'm not content to give you modern proposals, modern psychology, popular versions that may distract or distort us from the very truth that we find in the book of Esther, but to unfold for each of us from the book the sovereign purposes, the unchangeable will of a sovereign God who rules over our lives. So as I close, I suggest to you a number of things to keep in your mind. Number one, God's providence interacts sovereignly with your behavior. 
We say it again, God's providence interacts sovereignly with your behavior. Your behavior goes like this all the time. And God is working through it all. We are changeable. He is unchangeable. Thank God he changes not. Right? Isn't that why he said, Jacob, you are not consumed because I, the Lord, do not change. If God changed, oh, how fickle God would be. Second, human pride and self-exaltation is always deceptive and always destructive. That's Haman, right? He's exalted. He's arrogant. He's filled with pride. And he comes to an end. So human pride and self-exaltation is deceptive and destructive. Thirdly, we must always continue to identify ourselves as God's people in a world that disparages us, that sees us as we really are, foreign, aliens, strangers, and exiles. Because that's what we are. This is not our home. We're passing through. We're exiles. God is with exiles. God is with us. And we live, though we live in this world, we are not of this world, right? And when you cannot see for yourself the purposes of God and the wisdom of God and the goodness of God in all the events of your life, which appear sometimes to be like awful darkness, then lift up your eyes in faith, in faith, and know that God always reigns. And everything He does in the darkness is so that you will come to see Him in brighter light and God will shine upon you for His glory. That's what I hope that all of us will see when we study the book of Esther. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, what a mighty God You are. And even, Father, when You are silent in the Word and we do not see You as we, as we read of You in other books in the Bible like, like Daniel where You are so intimately involved in the life of that man, Yet when we come to the book of Esther, there's nothing. And that troubles us. And yet, Father, help us to see that that doesn't mean you're not working, but that you are really, truly working in the dark, invisible, silent, and yet sovereignly powerful and gracious. So help us in our troubled times, in our dark hours, to turn to you for light, for you are the God of light. So, Father, thank you for our time tonight, and thank you for this book of Esther. May we learn from it, we pray. And now we thank you for this Lord's Day. Thank you for this new week before us. Go in front of us, lead us, direct us, and help us, we pray. So we commend all things to you, and praise you and worship you. In Jesus' name we ask this and give you thanks. Amen. Amen. May the Lord bless you and give you a good week.